Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Before we get started, let's talk about Pushnik. Pushnik is a subscription program available exclusively on Apple Podcast subscriptions. Members will get access to bonus content like extended versions of our Questlove and Beastie Boys episodes. You'll also get uninterrupted ads-free listening to many of your favorite podcasts like Revisionist History, Cautionary Tales, and The Happiness Lab. You can try it for free for seven days. Sign up for Pushnik and Apple Podcast subscriptions. Archie Shep's been a leader in what's known as avant-garde jazz since the 1960s. He famously played tenor sax alongside John Coltrane, Lee Morgan, and the great free jazz pianist Cecil Taylor. But like some musicians who are considered jazz artists, 84-year-old Shep doesn't consider the music he plays jazz at all. He calls it African-American music, to acknowledge the black Americans who created the tradition. Shep has been politically engaged for his entire 60-year career. Every one of his dozens of albums touches on African-Americans' struggle to attain equal rights in some fashion. One of my favorite albums, for instance, Attica Blues, takes a critical look at the Attica prison riots of 1971. On today's episode, I talked to Archie Shep about how an assignment he received in the third grade sparked his activism. Shep also talks about his relationship with Coltrane who he says never took his horn out of his mouth. And he also recalls the rhetorical power of Malcolm X and the lasting image of seeing him speak to a sea of blackheads on the streets of Harlem. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's my conversation with Archie Shep. 
I first heard your music when I was probably 15 years old, 16 years old. I discovered Attica Blues. Yeah. And it was at this time when I was just developing a love of jazz music. And I heard Attica Blues and it changed my whole idea of what people were doing then and what jazz could be. And obviously there was a, a journey to that album, but I thought it could be a good place to start. One, because it was my starting point with your music that I've since dived real deep into and fallen in love with. But it also really matches sort of the tenor of the present time here in America. Well, the idea was given to me by my drummer at the time, Beaver Harris, who suggested that it might be a good idea to commemorate uh, what had gone on in Attica. And uh, I thought it was a good idea. And uh, at that point, I began to write music and uh, put together the idea for the album. One of the reasons that it really kind of opened my, my eyes to what jazz could be, because there's these kind of incredible vocals on, on that album that are unlike other vocal jazz. It's not like a vocal jazz record the way you might think of an Ella Fitzgerald album sounding, right? Yeah. And I know your drummer wrote those lyrics. Did he come to you with the lyrics first when he had the idea? Well, he didn't actually write the lyrics. I wrote the lyrics and I gave him credit for it because at the time he was trying to become a member of BMI and he had to have some document recorded. And I gave him credit for the words, the lyrics. Though I actually wrote the lyrics. Did you write them before you composed the music? Well, uh, at the same time, some some of the, the, the lyrics were suggested to me by him and just in conversation. He had a way of describing things about the natural forces and... Uh, various uh, things that he would say that gave me a, an idea of what I wanted to put, how I wanted to construct the lyrics. Only when the natural forces tell the world that it's getting old, do I worry, yeah, I worry, can you dig it, about the human soul. So uh, some, of, some of his conversation influenced my writing of the, uh, the lyrics. Was it common for you or uncommon for you to sort of derive inspiration for a song or an album from political happenings of the time? Well, I, I've been politically engaged just about all my career. All my albums have some, make some allusion to struggled for African Americans to attain equal equal rights. So uh, it, it, it was was not unusual that uh, that Attica Blues was uh, dedicated and focused very uh, intensely on the uh, on the civil rights struggle because I was an activist on the streets. I was with Mary Baraka and people, Calvin Hicks, people like that. And uh, we were frequently uh, on the streets of Harlem with handing out handbills and occasionally making speeches on the street to the people. Uh, so it, it was not unusual that Attica was so focused. 
When did you first become politically aware in, in terms of the African-American struggle for dignity, equality, freedom? As a very young man, I remember in the third grade, the teacher asked us to write a paper about anything. Uh, couldn't write about much at that age. But I, I wrote a paper about the struggle of black people to be free. And she was really quite amazed. She asked me, where did I get those ideas from? And I said, from my father and the man upstairs. It was a, a Billy Myers who rented an apartment in my family's house. My father and he used to, on the weekends, would discuss political events. So I, I was very early uh, immersed in the, in the civil rights dialogue. That would have been maybe mid-40s. Yeah. I would say a lot of people now don't think about there being a robust civil rights movement. You know, we, Dr. King and Selma and all that is in, you know, the 50s, maybe 10 years after this. Well, there was no movement, but black people were very aware of the contradictions in the society. And my father and the man upstairs used to frequently discuss the uh, the inconsistencies that existed in uh, in, in black life uh, vis-a-vis the uh, struggle to be for, for freedom which which was almost continual after the end of slavery we've continually fought to extricate ourselves from oppression your dad seems like he must have had a pretty big influence on you i mean you're citing him as as a person who kind of opened your mind and was, you would always hear him talk about the struggle for black freedom. And I know he also played banjo. Yeah, he, he was, he's influenced me to play music. And uh, also his mother, my grandmother, Mama Rose, was very active in civil rights affairs. And, and the, the Baptists, black Baptists were, very committed in the in the south, so so they had uh, what might might amount to pre civil rights organizations uh, that my grandmother frequented, and she she read uh, quite a bit. She read intensely, and and, and her her daughter, my aunt Avis, was a school teacher. So uh, I, I was frequently. Uh, acquainted with, with what was going on in, in the black community. Did your dad teach you to play your first instrument? Well, the, my first instrument was the banjo, and he taught me a few chords on the banjo. I later took piano lessons formally and clarinet and a bit of, studied a bit of saxophone with Tony Mitchell and in the early days when you were learning banjo with your dad, what would you have been listening to or playing? Well, what he was playing, in fact, he played, he taught me the first few bars of the Charleston. The Charleston, like the dance? Charleston, Charleston, dump, dump, it up, beep, beep, dump, dee, dump, dee, da, 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 da. That's uh, James P. Johnson's. It was a dance. Uh, and it was a dance that was inspired by the music, the Charleston. That's so cool. How did you end up settling on sax? 
Well, I, I was a boy in school. I heard play. Well, we had quite a, a couple of very good musicians. Uh, uh, Brinkley Blackwell, uh, Norman Satchel, and uh, a, a, a white white boy, uh, George uh, Oboletsky, I believe, who was quite adapted at saxophone. So I was, you might say, influenced by all three of them, especially Satchel, who uh, one day he played for the the assembly uh, a piece of Sonny Stitt uh, string in the jug. And uh, I went home and I told my mother, I want to get a saxophone. I was about 15 at that age. Up to that time, I had been studying piano and clarinet. Philadelphia is a rich jazz town. When did you start listening to jazz? When did you become aware of it? And when did you start becoming aware of the musicians who were in your city, in Philly? First, uh, I became aware of the music. And and that was from the beginning because my father played what you called so-called jazz music. I I call it African-American music. So from the very beginning, that was all I listened to. he had recordings of Duke Ellington and Count Basie, a lot of blues recordings. So uh, through him, I became aware of what was going on. Thinking about the people who are you're in your town, the Heath brothers, Coltrane. Yeah, I heard Jimmy when I was 17, I believe. I'd gone to a concert of Stan Getz. Uh, he was playing at a place called Reynolds Hall in Philadelphia, and he was there with Jimmy and Rainey. And the place was packed. He, uh, so they played the first set, but uh, Reynolds Hall had a number of rooms that they rented out for private uh, affairs. And, and a friend of mine who I was with at the time, Eddie Ford, we started wandering around the building and we hit on the, this room where there was a... a, a some kind of an affair going on. And Jimmy Heath was playing. And I remember we were so uh, attracted by what he played that we never went back to hear the stand guests after the intermission. And uh, I asked Jimmy when uh, I took the liberty to ask him if he would give me some help on the saxophone. And uh, he, he said he would. I remember going to his home the following week, and uh, I found out he didn't own a saxophone. In fact, he'd been playing on a borrowed horn. And uh, I brought my sax with me, and he played it. I couldn't get much out of it. But I remember when, after he played it, it seemed like it had taken a life of its own. It's, the color had changed. The horn, had, he sort of warmed it up and uh, hung out with him all that that afternoon, he went to a jam session and played. And the next week, I was going back from my lesson, and his brother, uh, Tootie, Albert, answered the door, and he said, Jim, Jimmy's in the joint. He was in jail, and he stayed in jail for six years. Wow, I didn't, I didn't know that part of his story. Yeah, he had, uh, they had caught him with smoking marijuana in the back of a car, and... Uh, he, he was imprisoned for six years. So I never got that second lesson. Wow. So you had one lesson with him. Yeah, and that was really listening to him play. And uh, that, that was 
quite informative by itself, but I never really formally got to study with him. I know not too long after that, you had you were in a band with Lee Morgan. Yeah, I, I met Lee as a, a, a kid. Uh, I was a year older than him, and, uh, but he was very advanced, and he was playing with really professional music. He was a professional when I met him. He was playing with guys like C Sharp and Coltrane. He was known, even though he was only 15 or 16 years old. I asked him to give me some help on the instrument, and uh, he, he consented to do so. The uh, first session I made with him, I had only heard Stan Getz really on, on the saxophone, and I tried to create my Stan Getz sound. And he and his, his friend who were observing me, they seemed to be somewhat, they, they thought it was rather peculiar. They didn't, I don't think that they, uh, they, they accepted my, uh, my offering. So finally, uh, he asked me to play something with him, uh, to play a blues. And uh, I, I learned the blues from my father because I knew the blues instinctively. And when, when I finished playing this, my solo, he, he said, uh, man, don't ever change. And uh, that's how we d developed a, a, a very lasting friendship. And uh, when he would have blues gigs, he would call me uh, to, to play with him. He, because he played standards and ballad, he he, uh, he had a very wide knowledge of music, but uh, I was sort of limited to the blues, but I could play the blues. So it's like you went back to the source. Well, yeah, I, I used the sound that I, I knew. I'd heard a lot of Ben Webster and Prez uh, through the recordings of my father and uh, I, I suppose I sounded a little bit like Vin. That was my natural sound and the sound that I later uh, made, made my own. Yeah, Ben Webster's quite a quite a soulful cat, man. His sound is... Oh, yeah, he's a soulful brother. We'll be right back with more from Archie Shep after a quick break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. 
With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know the fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We're back with more of my conversation with Archie Shep. So you had a band with Lee Morgan and Carl Holmes called the Jolly Rompers? Well, in fact, I, I was with the Jolly Rompers, Carl and John Holmes. Uh, they had a band out in Muller Grove, Pennsylvania. But I kept bugging, bugging them to, to get Lee Morgan in the band. So when they got Lee, they fired me. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Yeah. So much for trying to do a good thing, Archie. Yeah, yeah. Trying to help my friends get a gig. You you mentioned that Lee Morgan was a year or two younger than you, but when you look at his career compared to yours, you know, his was much more sort of straight ahead. So it's funny to me that you two coming from the same town, that you being the older of the two kind of had this much more from the start, this very adventurous career where you were really exploring and stretching out. And not that Lee wasn't, Lee was incredible, but his sound was much more in line with the hard bop sound. The tradition. Yeah. 
That was because I, I teamed up with Cecil Taylor very early. I, I went in a direction I never thought I would, in fact, so-called free jazz, free improvisation. That was encouraged by Cecil, and uh, he kind of opened my ears to another uh, direction. And Cecil was a piano player and maybe also like a poet from New York. Yeah, uh, he was one of the first to really uh, completely dispense with traditional harmony and tempi and uh, after uh, Ornette came to New York. And I don't know, Ornette was probably doing the same thing out in California, but uh, CT was the influence in New York. When did you first hear Cecil Taylor and what made you when you heard him gravitate towards that sound? Well, I, I didn't really like the sound. I, I heard him on record and I wasn't very impressed. My background was, as you said, uh, very much uh, oriented towards Lee and the kind of music he played. But uh, his bass player, heard me at a jam session in New York, and Cecil was looking for a saxophone player, so he recommended me to Cecil. And uh, Cecil hired me without having really heard me uh, on the advice of his bass player. I met him one night on the streets in New York uh, in the West Village, and somehow he seemed to know me, though I had never been introduced to him. So you're Archie Shep, he said. You want to make a record? And I said, yeah. Almost immediately after I met him, we started rehearsing for a recording, which we made uh, The World of Cecil Taylor. And uh, I was with his band, though we didn't work much, for about two years. And uh, he was quite an influence on me. ideationally in terms of my ideas and he was the the first time i heard of malcolm x was through cecil really and uh, we used to have discussions after rehearsals that went on for hours so he was quite quite an, uh, an enormous influence on on my my political and social uh, ideas did you ever see Malcolm speak in those days? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I heard him at uh, Temple Number no. 7 and then uh, on the streets of Harlem. He spoke one, uh, one afternoon. The, the, the street was crowded with people. All you could see was heads, black heads. And, and the police uh, at that time were mostly white. They, they were in the crowd. They, they, they were red with, with probably fear. And uh, Malcolm, uh, he mounted the podium. And uh, at that time, you had to have the American flag when you gave a speech. You probably still do. And uh, he had this little flag that you get from Woolworths. It, you could hardly see it from where I was. And, and he, he planted it on the podium and he, he said, you see that flag? Your mother was raped under that flag. 
And the crowd went, oh, yeah. And then he says, your father was murdered under that flag. And uh, the police were really visibly uh, frightened by, intimidated by his language. But he, he was a powerful speaker. And uh, I, I was immediately attracted to his uh, discourse. Around this same time, you not only fall in with Cecil Taylor, who's ideologically expanding your horizon, but musically be expanding not only your vocabulary, but the way you think of the framework for the music you play. And then you're also hearing Malcolm X speak in Harlem. And at the time, no one else was framing the struggle for African-Americans the way Malcolm was. He had a great way of making you understand your own condition. <laughs> yeah, he, he uh, instilled a sense of identity and uh, made you proud of your African heritage because he, uh, he, he would often uh, talk about the, 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 the antecedents of, of slavery. And uh, it was an awakening. It broadened my horizons in a way that I never imagined coming from Philadelphia. So Cecil Taylor was a big influence on sort of your journey to avant-garde music. But also from your hometown is Coltrane, who you were friends with and played with, who was also a person who really moved things forward in terms of where jazz could go, along with Ornette, along with Cecil. Did you pick up any of that from Coltrane as well? Well, John con- confirmed my, the direction I was taking. He, he came out of the tradition, and uh, un- unlike Ornette and Cecil, he didn't start on the fringes of the music. He, he began right in the center of it, and he, he was an improviser uh, par excellence, uh, and I was very influenced by, uh, primarily uh, by his his work. And uh, as I say, he, he convinced me that by by example that his, that I was right in terms of what the, my search, because he he did he later recorded with Cecil Taylor, and he was a close friend of Ornette's. And uh, so when I met him at the Five Spot. He was playing with Monk, and uh, he never really took the horn out of his mouth from the time he started on the intermissions when the other guys would be at the bar. He was he went into the kitchen and he was practicing the pieces that he that he had learned from Monk. He was refining them, and uh, so. Uh, after I heard him one night, I asked him, uh, I, was, I was at the club every night to hear him. I asked him if he would help me with the saxophone. And uh, he graciously conceded. And uh, I was at his house the next morning at 10 o'clock. Of course, he didn't get home until 4 in the morning. And then he usually practiced till he went to sleep. And so he probably hadn't gone to bed and sleep until about six. And I was there at 10. So his uh, wife at the time, uh, Naima, told me that he was asleep, but I could wait for him. So at about one o'clock, he got up and uh, 
he went right to the saxophone, which was on the sofa, and he played about 15 minutes uninterrupted. Something like I imagined was Giant Steps, of which later became Giant Steps. Then when he, he, he asked me to play for him, and uh, his, his advice to me was to keep my hands closer to the keys so I would be, be, be able to move faster. And uh, he didn't really formally teach me. He, I just had conversations with him. I remember talking with him one day, and he, we spent the whole afternoon talking about Monk and Miles and Art Tatum. And he, he explained to me how he'd resolved chords, uh, maybe starting a fifth away from the tonic and coming down in half steps, playing scales, something that I later tried to adapt to my own style. But it, it really, uh, basically, it was a communion of, of uh, my appreciation for him. And more than uh, actual saxophone lessons, we we became uh, conversant in the... And I, I really, uh, I, I guess because I appreciated him so much, I looked looked up to him as an older brother. I had been an only child, but uh, an older brother that I wish I had had. And probably wish you had more time with, I'm sure, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And John Coltrane helped you get your your record deal with Impulse, right? Yeah, he, he was essential in the my getting that recording. Uh, I had been calling Bob Thiel, the A&R man for Impulse. I called him frequently. At the time, I was on welfare, and I used to take a dollar a day and, and change it to dimes. It cost a dime to make a phone call. And I would call uh, his office. His secretary, Lillian, whom I got to know later on fairly well, but I always say uh, Bob is out to lunch or he's gone for the day. Finally, I asked John on the advice of Bill Dixon, who was we were working together, and he said, well, Coltrane's your friend. Why don't you ask him to get you a record date? So that kind of gave me up enough of a nerve to ask John if he would help me uh, talk to Bob Thiel. And he looked at me very hard and he said, uh, you know, a lot of people think I'm easy. And uh, I said, John, I'm, that's not where I'm coming from. I'm, I'm, I'm serious. And uh, uh, he knew I respected him. So he said, uh, well, I'll see what I can do. The next day I called and Lee and uh, the secretary said, uh, Bob's not, he's out to lunch but he's expecting your call. And that way I arranged a recording date. He, he tried to talk me out of it by saying that uh, you guys are avant-garde and you want to play your own music. You'll have to play the songs of Coltrane. But I had already been rehearsing. For, I knew that that was his line. And I had already been rehearsing uh, with Roswell Rudd a repertory of John's music. So I said, yeah, I know, and uh, I'm ready. So uh, 
the, the date was arranged. And uh, when we arrived at the studio, Rudy Van Yelders, Bob, but he, he really was, he didn't want to do this recording at all. He had his back turned to me. And all I could see was the smoke coming out of his pipe. And uh, by, by the time we did the third recording or so, he said, hey, this stuff is great. I'm going to call John and ask him to come and hear you. So he called Shane out on Long Island. We were in New Jersey. And uh, Shane uh, very, very graciously conceded to, to come to the recording date. It was late at night. And uh, so when he arrived, you'll see on the, uh, the the album cover, he doesn't have on any socks. <laughs> but I, I later heard that John didn't wear socks anyway. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, he, he played, Bob Thiel played some of the examples of the recording for Train. And the only one that, that he didn't like was the piece that I, I had written. It was a piece called Rufus Swung. His, his back at last to the wind and his neck snapped. It was a, a title that was a bit uh, lengthy and political in nature. And uh, he didn't want to use that when he said, I don't like this recording. And uh, he played it for John and John said, I like it, Bob. So they left it in. So that's the only piece that I wrote that's on the, the recording. It's the recording is four for train. Yeah, and it's a it, those are some beautiful renditions of of, of Coltrane's. Yeah, I thought we we we, we nailed it. We we got it, it wasn't exactly the way he would have played it. That's what makes it great, though. No, thank you. And you also played on the Love Supreme sessions with Coltrane, and then also on the Ascension record. Yes. How were those sessions with John? I was always uh, overwhelmed by the presence of John Coltrane. And I, I, I always tried to do my best and to present my work as originally as possible. On Love Supreme, I, I was, I suppose, somewhat intimidated, though he, he didn't mean for me to be, but I had a problem just expressing what I really might have done because uh, I, I could have really approached the, the song more modally and gotten into it, but I wanted to do something that was somehow different. And so the the first takes, I don't know, I don't, I didn't feel like I got into the music like I really wanted to. But as we did several other takes, they they released them recently. I can see that I I, uh, I relaxed and I got into the music more uh, intensely. What did you think of the music he was making on A Love Supreme and Ascension too at that time? I mean, was it surprising to you that that's what he was composing? No, no, not at all. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, when we did Ascension, he had a, a set of chords that he gave to McCoy to play as the sort of interludes and he would play on the interludes. I often wish I had asked him what were the chords that he gave McCoy to play, but I didn't think to do that. After a quick break, we'll be back with more from Archie Shep. 
Snagajob is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. We're back with the rest of my conversation with Archie Shep. There's a lot of Latin influence in your music, even songs that might not even 
uh, maybe harmonically or melodically sound Latin. There's a, there's a, you know, like a three over two or, you know, there's a rhythm sometimes going on and through your music. Where did Born in the South move to Philly? Dad plays banjo, there's a lot of blues going on, jazz music, of course. Where, where did this Latin influence come in? At what point did that enter your consciousness? Well, uh, when I moved to New York, I played in a, a Puerto Rican band with a guy called Chito Castro. He featured uh, merengue and a lot of rhythms like that, which uh, I quickly and, and became attached to. And uh, I, I still like those rhythms. What is it about those rhythms that appeal to you? Well, the, the sense of dance. And the, the dances they do are really quite uh, exciting. And it's interesting, too, because by the, the time you start recording records, the 60s, jazz has really gotten away from the idea of jazz as being dance music is kind of gone or out of favor. And you're bringing this element back into it. It's kind of interesting. Well, I, I did. And I always have, uh, considered dance an, an essential part of African-American music expression. I, this is a good uh, chance to talk about why you don't like the term jazz. I, I read at some point the word art, you said you felt is a passive word. There's no function to the word art. Art's not a functional thing. And you consider at least your music or maybe music in general to be functional. Is that still something you believe? Is that something you ascribe to still? Yeah, absolutely. And, and dance is a function of, of music. So, uh, yes, I, I do feel that uh, the word art is rather abstract unless it's connected to something that has meaning. I think a lot of people would say avant-garde, and you, you know, you, I think you do consider the music you play avant-garde. That brings up a, a, an anecdote uh, Duke and uh, Max and Charlie Mingus were recording uh, Money Jungle. And uh, the story goes that uh, Mr. Mingus asked Mr. Ellington, uh, why don't we do something avant-garde, Duke? And Duke said, oh, Charles, let's not go back to that. <laughs> so that's sort of how I feel about avant-garde because... When I was a younger man, they called me a, a leader of the avant-garde, and now they call me a veteran of the avant-garde. Duke's idea was when you name a music, you date it in time. So avant-garde is a way of describing the music, but it doesn't fix the music in a block of time. And I imagine you feel the same way about the term jazz, the label jazz. Well, yeah. And then I, I think that jazz is, is really a, a term that limits the expression and the, uh, the true meaning of African-American music so that somehow blacks are left out of the equation. They are made a part of the equation. But in, in fact, they're never given credit for the creation of the music. It wouldn't exist without, without our people. Not to say that white people can't play that music, but that's defined by African-American innovations. 
going back to Louis Armstrong, up to Coltrane, all the key innovators have been African Americans. In fact, the, the word jazz is a French word, in my opinion. It's not uh, in, in the, uh, the American lexicon, the English lex lexicon. There is a word in French, jazzé, which means to talk, uh, light banter. And, and uh, there's a town in France called Jazz, which is the way jazz was originally spelled. J-A-S-S. -S. Yes. So it seems to me to confirm the origins of the word to the French people who settled in New Orleans and who gave it the name jazz. I mean, yeah, that, that would tend to make sense then. That would be the French connection, yeah. The real French connection, yeah. Yes. Do you have a composition of yours that you return to most often, either in your mind or in, in your playing, something you think about most often? In other words, a favorite composition or one that you just, for whatever reason, return to most often? I, I have a, a piece I wrote called Ujama, which is dedicated to my daughter. I played that quite a bit. And uh, another piece I, I dedicated to Elmo Hope called Hope Two, which I have played quite a bit. I'll ask one last question. When Quincy Jones put out Back on the Block, in the early 90s, I remember that you weren't the biggest fan of it because it put people like Dizzy Gillespie and surrounded them by these different trappings, these different idioms. So I was curious, you know, how your views have changed since then. You've never seemed to be a person who felt restricted to one style of music. So I'm just curious how you felt collaborating with your nephew, who's a, who's a rapper, Rob Poetic. I, I feel very close to rap because I did uh, what, what would be called a slam today, I guess, in, in uh, tribute to my grandmother, Mama Rose, back in the 60s. And uh, I uh, did another uh, poem set to music uh, called The Wedding when I was out in California. So I, I feel that in a way I'm kind of one of the originators of, of rap music uh, along with The Last Poets and Langston Hughes and Melvin Van Peebles. I, I was very early into to mixing words and music. So uh, playing with my nephew was really a, a privilege and a... I enjoyed it very much uh, because it was like getting back into something that I, I had been explored many years before. Well, Archie, I don't want to keep you from your practice. I know you're going to be practicing now. Thank you so much for doing this. It's really an honor, and it's been an honor to listen to your music all these years as well. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. You've asked some very interesting questions, and it was a very interesting interview. Thanks to Archie Shep for sharing stories with us from his incredible career. To hear our favorite Archie Shep songs, head to brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. 
Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee, our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. Also, consider becoming a Pushnik. Pushnik is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and ad-free, uninterrupted listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushnik exclusively on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh my, look at that, he is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.